Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, Happy New Year. Can we still say that, Mid-Jan? I know, it's been a while now since it's been New Year, but... Um, we well, hope we've had a good start to the decade. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I like to mix it up, keep the listeners on their toes. And also, we've entered a new decade. I mean, I still can't believe that the 90s was 30 years ago now. It's true. It's a fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's not changing. Yeah. No. <laughs> and this time of year, for lots of people, is a time when new resolutions get made and there is an abundance of conversation around health and, you guessed it, weight. So on that note, today we are going to be talking about weight stigma and what actually determines health, with the help of our guest, Dr. Ollie Williams. Yeah, exciting stuff. So now I know what the listeners might be thinking. We've done episodes on weight stigma before, but if you couldn't already tell, this is a big topic and an equally big issue with our society today. So we want to come back to it time and time again. Yeah, exactly. It's not a one and done conversation, is it? No, exactly. Yeah, so today we're going to be really focusing on the, a social lens on, on health and weight stigma as well. So it's a slightly different perspective as well. Yeah, it is. And it's really interesting to get those different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So on that note, I think we should get started with this episode. Yeah, let's. So we're going to be very brief today because the main focus of this episode is hearing what Ollie has to say, which means you'll have less of us. Um, take that as you will. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No. But uh, <laughs> should we go straight to introducing Ollie then? Yeah, let's go. So, Dr. Ollie Williams is currently working at King's College London and is funded by the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute at the University of Cambridge. His research more generally focuses on health inequalities and social determinants of health, which Ollie will describe for us shortly. Great. So, Ollie is also the co founder of Act with Love, which produces work that challenges inequality and injustice. We will put a link to this website in our show notes, and Ollie will talk about the comic related to that too. Mm-hmm. So, I actually originally spoke to Ollie last year, and I'm really looking forward to having him on the episode. So it's kind of like we said, explore from a different angle weight stigma. So, let's hear what Ollie has to say. Yeah, brilliant. Let's get stuck in. Hi, Ollie. Welcome to Appearance Matters Podcast. It's great to have you on finally. Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's to be quite a lot to get through because it's such an interesting conversation that we want to have. So I'm just going to go straight in with the first question. So that's a, if you could firstly define weight stigma for our listeners and then kind of give a broad overview of your research that you've done regarding social determinants of health and how that kind of relates to weight stigma as well. Okay, sure. So um, in in academia, sort of in research, uh, different disciplines may have slightly different definitions of it. So um, what I'll put forward here, it's perhaps not the definitive definition, um, but it's one that I think is a workable one and it's a useful one. So generally in the research literature, people talk about weight stigma and weight bias. So they're both commonly used terms. Um, and I think that there is a there is a sort of distinction between them, but I'll come back to that. So for me, um, and the work that I do, and sort of other people, I think in my field, when we talk about weight stigma, what we're in, what we're referring to is sort of a discrediting of bigger bodies on uh, based on either incorrect assumptions about what those bodies represent. So the idea that they represent illness or laziness or um, irresponsibility, or it could be based on just mere prejudice. People have like an irrational hatred of bigger bodies. This is normally linked to things like beauty standards. So people think 
people look disgusting if they don't fit into a size six, um, or it could be a combination of both of those things. So ha having sort of incorrect assumptions and prejudice, and they sort of all mixed together. Um, so if we were to make a distinction between uh, or, or the distinction between weight stigma and, and weight bias, I'd say weight stigma is sort of the culture that informs individual bias. Um, and ultimately stigma leads to discrimination. So we see this at an individual level. So people experience abuse. So, you know, this is the common thing that we hear people talking about that they get shouted out on the street and also at a structural level. So things like uh, with employment, we know that uh, people have in, in bigger bodies are discriminated against in uh, when it comes to going to job interviews, for instance. Um, so weight stigma is an example of what uh, Graham Scambler terms sort of the weaponization of stigma. So this is where stigma, which is something that's discrediting, um, has been redefined as deviance. So that's that's the sense that that marker is indicating like immorality or non-compliance with some sort of rule or law, or that there's uh, something to blame these people for. So I, th I really like that term of the weaponization of stigma because stigma can be something that is enacted in different ways. So for instance, people can be stigmatized for, you know, looking different. Uh, that, that could be like, say, having a tattoo. But then the real interest, I think, with weight stigma comes from where that, that's, that sign is then considered to be a marker of uh, blame in some way that this person's immoral or irresponsible or blameworthy. Yeah, the kind of connotations that are attached to perhaps the appearances and the fact that weight often is linked to the connotation that the individual is said to be the person at fault or to blame, as opposed to something like, for example, a cleft or something that someone is born with where that has less connotations to that individual being at fault, perhaps, for that appearance type. Sure, ab absolutely. Yeah. And so my research is centrally concerned with the social determinants of health. So what that is, is looking at, so very often uh, we think of health in quite individualistic terms, but the social determinants of health is looking at what are the social influences that uh, have an impact on your health. So particularly my, my, my research looks at what we call um, social gradients across a range of health measures. So different health measures like life expectancy, some sort of measure of well-being, healthy life expectancy, uh, but also incidents of different diseases, for instance. Um, and what we see with social gradients, they're also known as wealth health gradients. So what we can see is if you say that there are, if we split society up into different groups of affluence, so you have the most affluent at one end, the least affluent at the other end, and in between you have sort of, you know, gradients of, so slightly less affluent, slightly less affluent again, slightly less affluent again. What we see with, with social gradients is that essentially this wealth health gradient describes that as people get poorer, generally in terms of their wealth, their health also gets poorer. So at a population level, that's what we see. So that's not saying that they're, that um, it's determined by those by that quality. So for instance, there will be exceptions. So people, lots of people know um, people from deprived backgrounds who have who live healthy lifestyles or, or whatever. But at a population level, we see this gradient where generally 
the wealthier you are, the healthier. And when we discuss wealth, we're talking about like income and what you have that can afford you. Yeah, so income will be one one element of that, but I, I think it's useful to think about it in terms of access to capital. So I know that's a quite a social science term, but capital means like things that you sort of you can gain and profit from. So we have say economic capital, which would be your income, but then there's also social capital. So um, I think I always when I used to teach the, the sort of uh, capital to my students, I used to tell, sort of ask people about um, work experience. So it's a really great, great way of demonstrating how how people have different access to social capital. So when I went to school, sort of I my work experience that I did, I worked in a pub because sort of that was that I didn't know people who were doctors. I didn't know people who were lawyers. I didn't know people who were vets. Whereas what you tend to see is when you talk to people who come from more affluent backgrounds, they did really great work experience because their parents knew people who had uh, really good jobs and so that's sort of social capital so wealth I think is having access to capital beyond just income yeah no that's a great explanation because I think sometimes people might assume that wealth just is generally related to how much money someone might have and so it's great to kind of use other examples of how like you say social capital can really actually impact one's ability to access things in their life um, yeah. So yeah, no, that's great. I want to move as well on to another question because we discussed about like weight stigma, what it is, and it was a great definition. And I also really like the fact that you mentioned it's a definition that we change or might adapt, or it's not like set in stone what we know right now. For example, in our um, episode with uh, Fat Talk, we already now kind of decided that we would prefer body talk because... Mm-hmm that's a better term for the descriptor of talking about others' bodies. Um, So we're consistently learning. So I think that was great as well. But on the notion of weight stigma, what impact do you think that weight stigma has on people who are of higher weight is the term I'll use for that? Um, So it's a great question, but probably not the best question to ask me. I wouldn't be the best person to answer that, given like that I'm sort of a relatively thin uh, person. Um, So... There's lots of people I've learned a lot from who would perhaps be able to answer that question better. So I've got a good friend of mine called Fiona Quigley. She's a PhD student at uh, at Ulster University doing um, some research around health services um, that are available to um, people of bigger bodies. Um, And she's really, really insightful and has uh, what I particularly like about Fiona is that she will listen to people from all sides of the debate. And I think that not just the debate, because I think that 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 sort of suggests that this is sort of just about talking about things, but it's actually people's lives. So I think what's brilliant about Fiona is she talks to people from all different walks of life who have all different experiences. And I think that that's really important not to think that there is a fat experience you know um so i think fiona's work's really great and i think she's a really brilliant person to communicate with and you can do that on twitter she's very um vocal on twitter and uh will engage with you i really love the work of samantha murray who's a, a researcher at the university of hertfordshire and wrote the book the fat female body it's really brilliant um insightful comments about the female body in particular and 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 weight 
Um, I think the author, Roxane Gay, is really great, has written some brilliant and really interesting things about her life experiences and how um, body weight has uh, been influenced by her, the experiences she's had in her life and also how her body weight influences her life. Um, and for people who are more drawn to social media, I think there's an account um, run by someone who calls themselves Your Fat Friend. Um, and they post things on Twitter, which I think are really accessible and help people have a insight into people's lives. Um, writes about things like about going on planes or like, you know, just really simple things. So all of those people, I think, are really great people to advise on how weight stigma affects um, the lives of people of higher weights. So I, I wouldn't really talk about that, but I can talk about my own research. Um, That'd be great. Uh, so, I so where my research is is interested in or concerned with the social determinants of health. What's really interesting is that so what we know is that this that the social drivers have a huge impact on people's health, yes. and yet commonly or popularly, how health is framed is that it's an outcome of lifestyle and individual choices. So we see this through sort of like health campaigns like Change for Life, that idea sort of like eat well, uh, move more, mm -hmm. live longer, that, that sense that basically you're, you're in control on all of this. Um, and what we actually know is that, that those sorts of things, how, how the sort of diet that people have, how physically active they are, these things follow a social gradient as well. So it's, it's easier for some people to be physically active than it is for other people. Yep. For, for many, many reasons. So we have a situation where health is largely determined by social factors, yet it's popularly promoted as an individual responsibility with moral implications. So there's this narrative, isn't there, about if you don't adopt a healthy lifestyle, you're considered to be a drain on the NHS. And the NHS is obviously this massive like political football that, that gets kicked around. And there's a lot of collateral damage with that and what we and people of higher body weights are part of that collateral damage because they they get drawn into this this idea that they are a drain on the nhs um and what's particularly interesting for me and what we can see in in my research and that what links weight stigma with sort of social determinants of health is that obesity is predicted uh you can predict obesity along these social gradients as well. So it, it follows these social gradients. And research demonstrates that this gap, there's a gap in prevalence. Um, and so that the most affluent tend to be the lower numbers of people who are categorized as obese and the, the, the least affluent that tends to be the higher ones. So obviously we need to be critical of when we talk about obesity, particularly obesity measured by BMI, we need to be critical of that science and even the concept of obesity, of course. Yeah. But I think it is useful to acknowledge that there is this social gradient in the way that obesity is measured by, say, medical fraternity mm -hmm. and that how that informs public health and how that informs policy and how that informs the narrative about who's responsible and who's, who's irresponsible. Um, so... One of the things I did in my research was I spent a lot of time with uh, different weight loss groups in a in a, a deprived neighbourhood that had been set up through uh, an intervention to in, to reduce health inequalities. So I think it's interesting 
already that given what we know about the social determinants of health, that so these, this was an area of low unemployment, of low employment, sorry, this was an area where there was low educational um, achievement, this was an area where there was real social deprivation, problems in housing, all of those sorts of things. And yet when this money came in, one of the interventions that they put in was to set up weight loss groups. I do think that that sort of tells us a lot about the, our, our culture and the way that public health works. Mm-hmm. Um, and going along, so I went along to these uh, three different groups every week for, for about a year. And each group sort of numbers fluctuated, but there'd be uh, sometimes about 20 people in the group, sometimes three or four. And although they were weight loss groups, I, I, I came to call them sort of uh, social groups with scales, because it was quite clear that a lot of the people who came weren't actively trying to lose weight. They were there because it had sort of two elements. People would get weighed at the beginning and have their weight recorded and they all had these little cards, which people who go to these sort of weight loss groups will be familiar with. You have your weight recorded each week. But they, it was very clear that they, they used the groups to be physically active. So they would get weighed and then they would have an hour where they could be, uh, they did various physical activities. So that ranged from things like uh, Zumba to football to netball uh, to like aerobics, all of those sorts of things. And I, what was really interesting is, so I, I was there and I was as part of those groups. And so I observed a lot of people getting weighed. So at the beginning, sort of, I just didn't realize how significant it was because it's part of, I think, our culture. So this idea, people would come in and they would say, I know I've put on this week. I, I know it. I can feel that I've put on this week. I just feel it. I can feel it in my, like my clothes are tighter. People would often talk about, I feel gross. Like I, can, right. I feel gross. I feel bigger. I know that I put on this week. And then they would usually go on to list a load of things that they had done. I was going to uh, say, yeah. Which, which would like sort of, in, in, in inverted quotes, sort of bad behaviours, you know, things like where they hadn't been as physically active as they had planned to be, or they had, it was somebody's birthday and they'd eaten birthday cake, you know, they had gone away from a diet that they were trying to keep whatever. So there were all of these behaviours which were sort of negatively moralised. And then what was really interesting, in a lot of these instances, people would get on the scales and they had either stayed the same weight or they had lost weight. And then they would get off and there was a, an element where people were pleased about this, but there was a genuine confusion of, I really don't know how that's happened. Okay. And that wasn't just based on a sort of, so I've, I've had some people uh, talk to me about my work and say, well, you know, this is just a psychological trick that people do, that sort of thing of your, it's expectation management. If you say that you go, you're, I know I'm going to put on, and then you, if you do put on, it sort of protects you against that sort of the, the crushing element of be, hoping that you'd lost weight but you actually put on. But it was beyond that because the thing that really confused people was that they would say, but I could feel it. Like I, I my clothes were tight. I felt heavier. And at the beginning, sort of, I didn't, I didn't pay this much attention because people do talk about, like, you know, I feel heavier, I feel fat, whatever. But increasingly this happened Every single week, pretty much, somebody, and it wasn't always the same people, would have this experience. And then it became quite clear to me is that people could actually feel this weight that they expected to put on as a consequence of these 
performing behaviors which were stigmatized, behaviors that were considered to be bad behaviors because those behaviors were associated with weight gain. So I came to call this the weight of expectation, that mm. people would genuinely feel heavier if they had, if they had performed these uh, stigmatized behaviors. And interestingly, just to mention, it didn't seem to always align with the actual weight that they tended to may have lost or may have gained or even stayed the same it didn't seem to like correlate with what actually tended to happen exactly and, that, and that's absolutely key to understanding this so it, that's how you know it's not just this sort of psychological trick like this was people who were genuinely saying i could feel that i put on weight but then they would get on the scales and they and they hadn't so the way that i tried to um theorize this in, in my work was to say that uh, people have sort of embodied or it's possible for people to embody stigma. So the sort of guilt associated with eating uh, junk foods, as they're called, or, uh, or not being physically active when you had intended to, that guilt, you can come to actually feel it in your body. Now, this might sound sort of like, like far-fetched, but there's ever... Um, phenomenon that we know where this is the case So people talk about um phantom limb syndrome for instance so that's the idea if you've lost a limb uh people who have lost a limb they often talk about how they can feel that that limb's still there so that idea that if you run your hand if someone's lost the lower part of their leg if you ran a hand under where their leg used to be that they would feel something and so what that's describing is a sort of psychosomatic stress the sort of the link between the mind and the body and so that sense feeling that sense of guilt can lead to actually feeling in your body a sensation um and i think this is something that people in that group did experience um absolutely but it's something i think that lots of people experience and i think what's quite important with my work so my work was with people who uh, lived in this sort of deprived area mainly, um, and most of them were sort of higher weight. And so I think that it's it's a different experience for them than it is other people. So, for instance, people have linked my work for, do you remember a few years ago there was um, a big controversy on, I think it was Facebook, where there was a... That is not a feeling. Yes, yeah. right. Um, so people go, oh, so what you're saying is that fat is a feeling, which... There is that. So that point, my point being is, you can feel stigma, you can embody stigma, weight stigma. But the point is, is people of different body sizes will experience that in different ways. So, and there's a different level of privilege. So, for instance, if you are a skinny person who's quite obsessed with their the way that they look um, and their diet, if you feel fat, that is different because when you go outside and you walk down the street you're not perceived as fat. Whereas it's very different for someone who has a much bigger body size because they are always visible as a person of a bigger body. So there is, I think, a difference in experience between those people. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. There's that element of feeling perhaps fat, but you're not in a body that is, versus feeling like you're being judged on your way externally through the stigma of others. Yeah, and, and importantly, not just feeling, like actually, actually receiving negatively judged by those people. And I think to bring this back to weight stigma, 
that is that is the point. So I, I so I think it's it's interesting to think about how the moralization of behaviors that related to weight gain and weight loss. So positive attributions given to things like eating salads and going jogging mm-hmm. and negative attributions being given to eating cake and sitting on the sofa, for instance. Engage it. So the, I think the moralization of those behaviors is not useful for anyone yeah. because I think that they are, they then, it, as we've seen, people throughout the weight spectrum will experience some sort of level of guilt or some sense of irresponsibility. Um, that, that is a burden that they could really do without, to yeah. be fair. It just adds another level of stress and morality around food, which isn't adding, it isn't helping at all to the already appearance-driven society we live in. Absolutely. But I think what often gets forgotten, particularly within, say, um, the movement that often refers to itself as body positivity or BOPO, like, is that that's disproportionate. People, different people are disproportionately disadvantaged. So people at higher weights are disproportionately disadvantaged by that, uh, that by weight stigma and by that, um, those moralized feelings. So I think that's really important to recognize because we cut, I, I, I get that it's a useful message to say people should feel comfortable in their own bodies and people should be positive about that. But not everyone has the same experience of their own body and not everyone is able to it's not just a feeling for some people I think that's really important that it's a lived reality and I often talk about um there's an example say the women that um well women and men who were at the weight loss groups that I went to a lot of these people did not have like a, a background in being particularly physically active um like this was something that they found difficult trying uh you know this a lot of these people were, weren't people who say like loved PE at school or whatever, right? So being physically active and going to these groups where you know they were doing things like doing Zumba, doing aerobics, doing um, uh, playing football, or whatever. These were challenging activities for them, but they really got involved and they really really did it, and they put in a lot of effort to, to doing those things, and. What I found particularly cruel about the culture that we have is that they could put in a huge amount of effort there, right, and do, doing those things. Then they could go and get showered, and then they could walk out into the car park, and then like some kids could shout at them like "fat lazy bitch" or or anything like that. Because the point is, is that when you're of a bigger size, you're always visible to other people, and what you visually represent within our culture are things like negative connotations, the idea that you're lazy, the idea that you're um, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to add to that, even like um, my research around like weight stigma in young children, the evidence is there that weight stigma and those negative con- connotations can come in as young as the age of four, of what we can measure and earlier to the age of three, before a child even starts school, they're already aware of these social connotations around weight and how those negative connotations can be attached at such an early age is quite scary absolutely but it it shows you um it's two way isn't it it shows you how resistant that culture is to change so one the reason why that happens at such a young age is because there's a culture already that exists that's educating 
those children, not always in, in obvious ways, but in subconscious ways about the way that we place value on particular bodies and not place value on, on other bodies. So it shows you that, that the only way that children that young could learn about those things or, or to pick up on those things is because there's a culture that supports it. But then the other way, if children are um, being taught those things or, or learning those things at such a young age, that culture is very unlikely to change, isn't it? Yeah, because exactly. that's a very young age to be picking that up. And then by the point in which you become, you could maybe be more critical about things. There's a many, many years that have gone and you, the, these ideas and these assumptions are already embedded into people's understanding. Essentially, it's embedded into what a lot of people would consider to be common sense. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really difficult to challenge people's idea of what is common sense. Exactly. And that's why weight stigma as a topic is such um, a large but almost difficult topic to like maneuver and discuss about because it is so ingrained into societal opinions about yeah what is very valued and what is deemed like common sense like you said so it's, it's a tricky topic but it's that makes it even more important to like discuss and debunk because there are lots in this conversation um yeah sure and, and on that point i think one of the ways that you do that is that consistently we need to talk uh, that, that we need to talk more with people who are at the receiving end of the of the brutal aspects of this culture, so people who are getting abused uh, on a daily basis, people who are discriminated against at a structural and institutional level as a consequence of their body, uh, body size and their weight. You need to learn from those people, and those people need to ha have that have the space to talk and, and to be heard and not just to be heard for people to actually do something about yeah. that and and i kind of think that leads me into the point of um your comic book ollie because through your phd there's this comic book you created called weight of expectation i've read it it's great um we will link to it in the show notes and also there's a new version of the weight of expectation but for teenagers um, yes yeah, so I kind of wanted you to discuss that a bit more about the artwork and how that kind of came about, really. Yeah, sure. So what I've just described, that um, that process of the weight of expectation, um, it was something that I thought would lots of people would relate to it. But in academia, when we talk about that, so the, pa the paper that I wrote about that is would be referred to as a phenomenological analysis of weight-based stigma, right? That's not if you said that to someone they are not going to know what that means and they're probably going to switch off mm -hmm. but it's something that i think most people would understand so this is the problem we have within academia within research is that we tend to write about things in a way that is completely impenetrable and often we have good ideas but we can't communicate that to people um so the reason that i sort of thought a comic would be a good way of illustrating this is at the time i was reading a a graphic novel if you read a graphic novel I don't I don't know I was looking at a graphic novel yeah um, by Katie Green called Lighter Than My Shadow which might be familiar to some of your listeners is it's about um, eating disorders um, and sort of the the experience of of an eating disorder and what can influence that and what was absolutely amazing about Katie's uh, illustrations was how she illustrated this feeling that that people have this sense of guilt and moral pressure that is impressed upon you so there's like scenes where 
she'll be sat at a table and she, you know, she's quite happily eating. And then someone might say, oh, that's quite a big portion. And then you just, she sort of had this scroll that came out from like the person who may have said that and then comes over onto the character and sort of just consumes this character. And it was such a brilliant way of illustrating how this outside force comes to be felt internally and it was exactly what I was seeing in these weight loss groups except for of course these are very different bodies so Katie was looking at someone uh, with a eating disorder and I was uh, researching people who are at a weight loss group and I thought but that 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 feeling is the way that she's illustrated that be translated across so I got in touch uh, with Katie and we we're like and she was happy to to do the comic and then uh, as you all know, with um, funding in academia, often it takes ages and ages and ages. And so by the time we got the funding, Katie was busy. So then she recommend, re- recommended that I worked with Jade. Mm-hmm. Um, Not me, <laughs> by yeah, the way, me. just to mention. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so she recommended that I work with uh, Jade Sarson, I should say, yeah. who um, did the comic with, with us. And Jade is like, Jade's work is amazing um and the thing that she has a a real skill at illustrating is emotion um which is essentially what we're what we're really dealing with here um and so the, the the idea was how can we create a comic that demonstrates this this experience that people have so there's a culture of uh, weight stigma and a culture of discrimination around that also how so to demonstrate that's a structural societal issue mm-hmm. but then that also has a consequence at, at, at an individual level so you know we had 10 pages or 12 pages in a comic that's quite a big you've got to say something about society and say something about personal experience but that's the brilliant thing about comics you can live through people's experiences and you can see how these outside forces are impacting these um people's lives and I think Jay did a really really great job we worked together we sort of co-created this um this comic and the point of the comic was to demonstrate that um this culture that moralizes health behaviors and stigmatizes weight and discriminates against people of um higher body weights what impact that actually has on people's lives and how that how people can feel that in their bodies. It's not just something that makes people feel sad. It's something that actually has a has a consequence. It creates what we'd call sort of like psychosomatic stress mm-hmm. on their on their body. Um, and so we illustrate that in, in many different ways. And there's a scene in the comic which every, like most people are drawn to, which is the experience of going swimming. And I think it's a really why it chimes with so many people is because, and I think we have this um, inherent lack of logic within sort of public health. That one of the things, say, like a doctor, which like a GP, would say to people if they're trying to advise them to lose weight is go swimming, because it's sort of um, a non-weight bearing activity. But while that seems intuitive advice to give someone it doesn't take into account how difficult that might be given that we have a culture that stigmatizes people who are of um, higher weights. Mm-hmm. So what the comic demonstrates is what that experience is like of going to swimming pool where essentially you have to get half naked in front, almost always in front of public audience. Now that takes a huge 
amount of um, confidence to do that. Now, if you only had to do that once, that's a big achievement. You know, like how people say that they might be nervous about giving a speech or something. But th- these people are being told to like go swimming every day or lots of times. So it's like to have to come up with that, to go through that process day after day after day, it helps you to understand why it's not just a, this idea of move more is not as simple as just moving more. And it's much more difficult for some people. And the reason it's difficult is because we have weight stigma. We have a cultural prejudice against people of particular sizes that makes it more difficult for certain people to be physically active. And it makes it more difficult for people just to go about their daily lives. And the comic, there's been a really great reaction to the comic from people across the board. So like people in uh, health services are now using it to uh, have conversations about weight stigma because a big part of, um, a big issue for me is that within uh, health services, generally people are only really interested in trying to get people to lose weight. Like as in like if, if people have a higher weight and we see this all the time, we've seen research on it, we hear people talking about it, is that whatever they go to their GP about could be an ear infection or whatever there's always a conversation about about weight yeah and that's problematic in itself but then i think there's an there's another issue there which is that generally when people talk about weight loss or talk about weight management there what's not considered is the fact that that's taking place within a culture that where there is this prejudice where there is that discrimination and actually a big part of addressing this issue is recognizing that so what, what the comic has helped a lot of uh, uh, health professionals do is actually think about that culture and to think about when they're talking with people, patients or um, people that they see about these, about these issues, to factor that in and to have conversations about that. I think we have to talk about weight stigma. If you're interested in trying to encourage people to manage their weight, as, in a, as a health professional, you have to also be interested in talking about weight stigma and how that affects people's life. Because if you're not, you're just going to sort of add to this burden that people have. It's sort of the sort of the elephant in the room that they're not willing to talk about, but it has this massive impact on people's lives. Yeah. Um, it's, it, lots of people have said that reading the comic, it helps them to feel seen, like that they've experienced that. And the thing that's sort of, it's a really weird feeling when you create something like that. So in one way, it's a great feeling to feel like you've captured a feeling. It makes it feel real, like you've really done a good job. Yeah. But on another level, it's really depressing that so many people have had this really, not have just had, it's not just past, live this as their life. Like people come up to me and say, that is me. The amount of people that come up to me and say, like particularly with that swimming uh, illustration that is me and what's really scary is that, that people across the weight spectrum come up and say that is me there's a huge amount of people who are having this negative experience so yes we've captured something that's that's great to, to have captured that and to sort of educate people about that um but it's also really depressing to realize how many people this is making their lives worse um but it'd also be um remiss to say that uh, to, to, to not mention that that not everyone has responded really positively to the comic. There are some people who felt like 
if we had money to make a comic about uh, people of higher weight, that we should have represented more positive images of people, uh, you know, demonstrating that people of higher weights can enjoy their bodies, can have a good time in their bodies, um, which I agree that it would be useful to have more of that in, 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 in the media. Um, but the comic was a translation of the research of what I observed, and I had a duty to the people that I was working with to demonstrate um, what they go through in their daily life. Um, and I feel that we did do uh, some really positive things in the sense of uh, to show uh, people of higher weights being physically active and that this wasn't a strange or odd thing, which is only an issue because people assume that people of higher weights aren't physically active. So what we did in the comic was demonstrate that just sort of like normalize it, just that these are, and we didn't, that's not fiction, that's based on the fact that I turned up every week to these weight loss groups and you had people of higher weights like doing incredibly intense physical activity. Um, so I think that's really positive. But yeah, so it's not been universally, um, welcomed but i think it has really helped in certain areas um and that's i suppose related as well to the the what we call the next generation edition of the comics or the one that you referred to being for uh teenagers so the reason we did that that's quite an interesting story of why so initially the the original version of the comic uh has swear words in it right so because we wanted to represent the reality of people's lives and we wanted to represent the abuse that people get and these were the terms and this was the language and this was the abuse that people got so i felt that to be true to their experience i didn't want to sanitize that for for an audience because you know i think that there's once you sanitize it why should you do that why shouldn't you force people to feel uncomfortable right yeah. um but then there was a really practical difficulty with that which is that we had lots of teachers in schools and colleges say that they wanted to use it as part of their like um, personal health and society education. Is that what it's called? PSH? Yeah, PSHE. It changes depending sometimes, but yeah, usually PSHE is the term they use for that class yeah. type. So we had lots of people saying that they would want to use the comic in that way, but it would be impossible for them to use a comic that had swearing in it just because they were very worried that parents would complain. I love the idea that parents think that children aren't exposed to swearing. <laughs> I think that is quite funny. Um, but anyway, I was reluctant to do it to begin with because I didn't want to sanitise it. And then what I think, the reason why this is interesting is I, we try to think of ways, well, how can we change it without sanitising it? And I, I said I'd only be interested in doing it if we can achieve that. And we found some alternatives to the language, which, although they weren't swear words, so they would be able to be used in a school, I actually felt that, felt that they were more offensive. So there's a weird paradox there that to make it so that the schools could use it, we removed the swear words, but it became more offensive and yet they were happy to use it. We do plan to do lesson plans and to create lessons so that they can be used in schools. So it's important to say we're not actually using that in schools at the moment until we can create a lesson that we feel that can be uh, put in schools. Because otherwise, you know, like with um, people working in the health services, teachers will have their own biases. So if you just give comics to people who may have these biases themselves, by using those as a teaching resource, they may actually reinforce weight stigma, not reduce it so yeah. until, until we can figure out a way of 
creating a package not that i like that term but creating a package where it can be delivered in a in a better way um we're keeping hold of them that's really valid and i think yeah like you say schools as well they could take it and mean well and it might be re- received completely different from the student i should mention as well it was um the holding back the comic from um from schools and the idea that we needed to create this package um came through conversations that i had with Raquel Sabatelli, as I believe how you say her surname, who's a researcher at the University of York, um, who I engaged with about about the comics. So that was really useful of her to to bring that up. Oh, and that's great. Yeah, it's always useful to get different opinions from others to kind of work out what's the best way to approach things, rather than taking a di- an idea and running with it, which has happened previously, and then realizing that that might not have gone the way that you wanted or thought it would have. A- absolutely, and I think that's a really useful point to say that good intentions aren't enough like you have to listen to people and you have to accept criticism and particularly even if that's painful and it's often painful because you're being well-intentioned if someone's being well-intentioned they're not meaning anything wrong by it um it's often hard to hear criticism and so a really great example of this i I was thinking about this after listening to one of your podcasts you know that thing that people it was odd because i was listening to your podcast and then someone did it at a meeting I was at earlier today where people say you're looking well like what's that supposed to mean like and and in other situations when we've met up and you don't say that do I do I look like I'm not well like what do you what do you mean you're looking well and often people mean you're looking slim you're looking healthy which is such a weird assumption to jump to yeah and I think when you were yeah it kind of explaining the comic as well something that kept coming to my mind is um with regards to weight stigma sometimes the comments that people quite might make are like in, in inverted commas well intentioned that they don't mean to cause harm but by saying oh you know if you lost a bit of weight that kind of but they're almost it's not coming from malice but actually that makes it even worse because those kind of comments really perpetuate the idea that weight is fundamentally important. Yeah, a- absolutely. I think it, it goes like when, say, people are attempting to lose weight, and if they do lose weight, it's that sense that people will feel that they can just comment on that. Like, that, as in, so, you look great now that you've lost yeah. however much or whatever. And the, the problem with that is because of how common or one of the many problems with that is because of the how common it is to regain weight. There is that sense of, okay, so if I looked great then, now that I've regained the weight, do I not look great now? And so that value, the value is always placed on the, the skinnier, thinner version of someone, which is not helpful, particularly like a lot of the time it's an arbitrary point, you know, so what somebody's weight weight is. Well, I'd, in in moral terms, it's absolutely arbitrary all the time. Like, yeah, weight is not a moral issue. But yeah, I think so. Even I think that is something that we need to reflect on more in terms of just because you're well intentioned, it doesn't mean that you have the solution or that you're always being helpful. And and the only way you can get around that is by listening to what people tell you. Yeah, I completely agree, and it relates in some ways to the final question I have, which is about how we might be able to change 
um, the conversation around weight stigma with it being so pervasive in our current society. So I kind of wanted to ask you, what do you see as quite important steps to reduce weight stigma in society? Perhaps language was one of them, um, but like, yeah. yeah, those things that you might consider as being important steps. So yeah, so if I, there's a few things that I think are, that would be really helpful. So if I sort of list them straight off and then we can talk about them in more detail. Right. So I think shifting away from understanding health and weight as outcomes of individual choice would be a really helpful move to move away from uh, health, um, weight stigma. And one way to help do that is to think about um, health and weight in what we would say biopsychosocial ways. So I'll I'll come back to that because I understand that's a, a loaded term. Yeah. So there's also a need to improve people's understanding about the complexity of weight. Um, there's a need to be critical of our everyone's own biases and the language that is used, as we've just spoken about. So to start off at the sort of biopsychosocial thing that I said, so that can seem like an intimidating term. It's not. So that is it. All it is is pushing together biological, psychological, and social, and so it's pushing them together. So bio, psycho, social. So what it's trying to, to illustrate is that something like health is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. It is influenced by biological factors, it's influenced by psychological factors, and it's influenced by social factors. And the reason why it's useful to have that all as one word is because it doesn't make sense to separate those things out. That all of those are influencing you at the same time. So your the social situation someone's in will influence their psychological state and the biological um, or genetic susceptibility that someone has to say putting on weight will influence their psychology. Will influence how they're um, reacted to in a culture of weight stigma, which is a social phenomenon. So it's really useful if we think about health and weight in those terms that because it stops us thinking about it purely in an individual choice-based way, which is often in health promotion and in popular culture, how we like to think about health. And the reason for that is because it helps to sell magazines and it helps um, public health to keep messages really simple. But it's far more complex than that. So there's no use giving a simple message if the thing that you're talking about isn't actually simple um so to be aware that weight and health are influenced by biological psychological and social factors and the only thing that i have a slight issue with that is putting social on the end i think that very often we are born into societies and you had a really lovely example earlier like children as young as four sort of demonstrating that they've learned weight stigma you're they're born into that yeah Exactly. Uh, they're born into that irrespective of what their uh, of what their um, biology is, but their psychology is informed by that culture. Mm -hmm. And and from my point of view, so people are born into a level of affluence. So if you're more if you're born into a more affluent family, you ha you will have more access to capital. And if you're born into a less affluent ca uh, family, you you won't. So that that would be one thing I think would really help. Um, and there's a need to increase knowledge of the science or about on the relationship between body weight and health and also the realities of weight loss um, so there's a few things to, to unpack with that so we don't often hear this in fact we hear the opposite but 
there is not a simple relationship between body weight and health. However, people want to frame that. It's far more complicated than public health wants to portray. It's far more complicated than what the media wants to portray. And the reason is because, you know, we have a massive diet industry that really benefits from creating this sense that it's a really simple idea. Public health work on this population level. So they're really interested in the population level, which often means that they don't think about how this impacts people in, in reality at an individual level. So that's, that's not an obvious relationship. So for instance, for like Samantha Murray puts this really well with this idea that for a lot of people, the idea of someone being uh, fat, and I say that in terms of a sort of fat actor is capital fat, the idea of somebody being fat and healthy is an impossibility. And what we see from research is that actually what, the, what is termed in research metabolically healthy um, but obese phenotype is that that actually is what we see a lot of the time. People are of higher weights are healthy or can be healthy. And what's really interesting, I think, particularly within that is the role that physical activity plays. Generally, people who are physically active, irrespective of their weight, will be what we call metabolically healthy. And just to mention, sorry, just to mention as well there, Ollie, I want to point out on the reverse that people can be look thin as an appearance type, but be quite unhealthy in their behaviours. Absolutely, and that's a really useful point to come back to the weight stigma, which is the culture allows those people to get a free pass, so to speak, and for bigger people who may be perfectly healthy to get to get a rap and you're like well that doesn't make any sense because if you're if your rationale for stigmatizing against bigger bodies is that they're unhealthy then why aren't you applying that across society and yeah. it's because of the assumption of sight so i can see this person's unhealthy because they're big i can see this person's healthy because they're thin but as i said it's far 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 more complicated than that so there's also um, you hear people say this, that weight occurs across a normal distribution at a population level. So what that means is that a variety of body sizes is normal. Um, so a uniformity in body sizes, so that idea of everybody conforming to what would be sort of categorised as a healthy BMI, would actually be abnormal, right? So I, I like to say that this would be a, a demonstration that culture had dominated over physiology, but at what cost? Right, because we know that people, different people, have different genetics, different makeup, and that's why you get sort of this normal distribution of different body weights. If everybody was a healthy body weight, it would. If everybody was a healthy BMI, I should say, um, it, that would be not just unusual. There would likely be health consequences beyond those that that are presented by public health. Like, what are those people who are fighting against their bodies? having having to do in order to, to achieve that and then I think people need to be more realistic or, or aware that once and when I say people I mean sort of people who are commenting on this idea that everyone should try and maintain this healthy BMI that once weight has been put on it's incredibly difficult to lose weight uh, for physiological and many other reasons um, again so this is why I think it's useful to think about things in biopsychosocial uh, ways um, and so we know from research, so more recent studies have found that uh, people who engaged in uh, weight loss interventions after five years, people tended to have put back on about 80% of what they had lost. Um, and that's the people who had actually 
been able to lose weight. Many people in that study weren't able to lose weight through the intervention or didn't lose uh, weight. Um, another study showed that only about half the people who go to commercial weight loss programs, so things like Slimming World, uh, lose what would be considered a clin clinically significant amount of weight, so like 5% weight loss. So again, these are programs, interventions that are designed to help people to lose weight, and yet the the rate at which people actually lose weight on those is really not massive, you know. And but what we're presented with, particularly in the media, and increasingly, I, th I feel like uh, if people are uncritical about public health, is the success stories. Now, how useful is it to present those success stories? For two reasons. One, if we know, say, for instance, in this case, if uh, about eighty percent of people are putting weight back on, um, then how like that represents the 20% of people who didn't so why that's like one fifth in comparison to four fifths so it's, it's sort of it's um, it's an anomaly just from that sense but also you know at points in time so you know you get these things like with slimming world where it's like the slimmer of the year or whatever but as we know that points in time so maybe five years later that person's put that weight back on that doesn't make that person a failure um yeah exactly but but the point is is that it's not it's not just about losing weight it's also about maintaining that weight loss and so that's far more complicated far more difficult and we don't really understand all of the science around that so often we like to make out that it's all incredibly certain when it's not um and one of the reasons we like to make out that it's incredibly certain is because there's um, an industry based on the idea that it's simple. If you just sign up to this, it will happen. You know, you can anyone could do this and anyone could be successful. Yeah, almost not that it is quick, but like a quick fix. Like, like here's your results. And also to to add to that about social media as well with the whole before and after imagery of um, perhaps yeah those weight loss stories as you're mentioning and almost making it like you're saying, a success story where people feel like, well, if they can do it, then so can I, and putting that ev extra level of pressure on that individual. Well, and to reflect that back out, so this is how it all ties back in with uh, weight stigma, the assumption that it's simple yeah. and it's that the assumption that it's easy means that when people look at people of bigger bodies and they think, why aren't you doing it? It's and simple and it's easy. So you're, you've either tried and you failed or you're not putting in enough effort to make it work. And yeah, and as I say, and the assumption that you are responsible for doing that as well. Yeah, and so you know, diet culture does tend to lend itself to weight cycling or what was commonly called like yo-yo dieting. Mm -hmm. um, this has like consequences on people's mental health, if not their physical health. Um, and you know, again, lots of things affect health. Rarely will these states be permanent. So it requires us to think about health in more complex and holistic ways. Um, and I think this is increasingly emphasised. If you only, like the, the, the focus on weight loss, okay, someone may be, so someone may uh, be able to lose lots of weight, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be healthy. There's not this, this, there's this assumption that losing the weight will make you healthier. Anyone who spent any time around sort of weight loss um, groups or people who diet know that often the techniques through which people go through to lose weight are anything but yeah. healthy. Um, 
And so you can actually have people lose weight but have a worse metabolic health or have a lower level of metabolic health than they did when they were of a heavier weight. So there's this really problematic assumption that being of a lower weight will mean that you're, you've got better health. So, and, and basically all of this, to, to sum all of that up, there just needs to be a separation between morality and weight. So we need to understand the relationship between weight and health as being more complex. And therefore we need to understand that you can't just simply link morality and weight. It doesn't make any sense to do that. Even if your, your argument for the morality of it is that um, people who uh, act in ways that drain that, that cost the NHS money are therefore a drain on the NHS. Now, anyone who wants to make that argument with me, I'll be willing to take them more seriously if they also applied that stigma to people who go on skiing holidays, for instance. And and but because th there's huge economic cost um, that that people will cause as a consequence of um, sports injuries. So not just skiing, but the whole promotion of uh, being more physically active. Being physically active inevitably leads to injuries. Almost nobody that is physically active will um, will be able to have an injury-free existence. That that increasingly, the more the more research we do on this, we know that it's very, very, very common for people to experience some level of um, of injury, and that has huge economic costs. So it, it, a lot of the time, it requires people to um, be less productive, as in they they. They have people have days off work. They can't go to work. It costs the, the NHS money. Um, so this is the thing that sort of most people move more. That sense that that's the the positive moral thing, but that also has big economic consequences on the NHS. Now, before I did the PhD that I ended up doing, um, I got offered the opportunity to do a PhD that was looking into um, the outcome that they had found where there'd been a bit of research done with GPs where they'd spoken to GPs about um, sports injuries. And they, they found that nine out of 10 um, GPs said that they would recommend people be more physically active. So when they came in, they would say to them, you know, maybe try and be more physically active. But nine out of 10 GPs also said that they weren't confident treating sports injuries. So you have this perfect problem that they're telling people to do something which almost inevitably leads to a sports injury and yet they don't know how to deal with that. So again, the, the reason I bring this up is that if you want to link morality on the basis of an economic rationale, you've got to do that with everything, which would lead the people who are currently stigmatising people of higher weights to apply it to people who they see out jogging, who they actually think are full of moral virtue and are, are good, upstanding citizens. So, yeah, if people want to make those arguments, I'll start taking them more seriously when they are they start looking at the skiers and the joggers and, and all of those folk. And everybody, you know, like you're saying, yeah, not yeah, not just singling out certain groups or cohorts of people, yeah, but actually considering all types of behaviours. That was great. I've just got loads of kind of things going around in my head. I do want to ask you one final question, please, Ollie, which we ask all our guests, um, and it's related to our cake morning we have at, here at the Centre for Appearance Research every mm -hmm. Thursday morning. Um, yeah. So we ask all our guests what kind of cake or at least sweet-related good would you perhaps bring for our cake morning? Okay. Uh, like... <laughs> Controversially, I think cake is massively overrated. I know that puts me in a minority, but on that, I do absolutely love flapjack. It's like 
was talking to someone recently and said, you know, if you could only eat one thing, I don't know what situation you would have to be in to only eat one thing for the rest of your life. Yeah. It would be a really strong contender for me. If, the, if I could only eat one thing, flapjack would be like right up there. I think it would probably be the one. I know what you mean. I've also thought about this, but like you say, I don't think I can imagine a context where that's applicable. But yeah, flapjack, that's a, just plain flapjack or would you add anything <clears throat> into it though? Uh, I think sometimes you can complicate a classic. I think Ooh. like it being original in its own thing, just normal. But there's obviously huge variation, isn't there? Like I like it when it's like chewy, you know? Not, yeah. I don't like those ones that you have to snap. I yeah. think if you have to snap a flapjack, it's gone wrong. Right. I like That's it funny. where it's like squidgy and then you eat it and it's like all chewy and like bouncy in your mouth. Slightly like underbaked in in the way of baking terms. Not that I would know them because I'm not a big baker, but I, I like that idea because like I say, we do say it's cake morning, but we are very open to, we've had brownies, we've had a brownie off before, so. Yeah, sure. I mean, people will bring a flapjack to a cake morning. That's That's happened. I've seen it. it Appropriate. That's without any controversy, so yeah. I think I'll be right, yeah. Well, I mean, you're always welcome, and Flapjack is always welcome too, so... <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, no, well, thank you very much, Ollie. That's been It's been a great conversation. Like I said, there's so much to talk about here, but it's great, and it's lots to consider for myself and our listeners, I'm sure. Um, so thank you once again. Well, thanks for inviting me on. That was such an interesting conversation. There's so much in there I'm like just like processing it all now that's the way I was yeah feeling. yeah um it's really interesting hearing Ollie talk obviously we talk about weight stigma a lot but thinking about it from that sociology lens and like he speaking about capital and economic capital social capital very sociology theories yeah medical stuff there's a lot to unpick there isn't yeah it? Definitely. Yeah, really interesting. I'm glad he signposted to a couple of uh, key people, and there's many, many more, but just uh, I think the people that he referenced, Rox- the writer Roxanne Gay, um, PhD candidate Fiona Quigley, someone you can find on social media, Samantha Murray, who I don't know, actually. I need to have a little Google. Um, and then your fat friend, who on social media, both Instagram and Twitter, um, their posts are, like, spot on. They're like, really, really interesting, really thought-provoking. Um, I probably would add in Sophie Hagen, um, again on social media, like a Danish comedian, but her some of her Instagram Twitter posts are, are really like on the on the money when it comes to weight stigma and how people treat people who are who are of higher weight. So a couple Great. of people to, to look out for there. And we can link to all of those in our yes, show notes. Exactly. So, so you can check them out as much as you like. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing I like noticed in that conversation you there was a reference to the fat is not a feeling yep. on Facebook and getting that removed. And I liked how that fat is not a feeling, um, getting that removed from Facebook came up because as a little teaser, someone who is involved in that action, that campaign, uh, is going to be a guest on a future podcast. And actually, we, t- we spoke about that yep. um, on episode 13, our social activism podcast. Great memory. I know. I like that. I know. Yeah, we did. And so, uh, so definitely check that, that out. It's, um, it's an interesting conversation and in how it was removed. Um, yeah, because fat is not a feeling. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a great conversation, nonetheless. Um, and yeah, I really liked as well, like thinking of weight stigma in relation to children, mm-hmm. and um, because that's directly related to my PhD yeah. and how weight stigma is clearly so pervasive in our society that um, it 
it trickles down all the way to young children mm-hmm. even before they've reached school. So just to reiterate that, that's it's quite a shocking way to highlight how pervasive it is and, every day. Yeah, and I think there's something about like it's because it's so pervasive, it's it's internalized and it's not always like a conscious thing that we're thinking about all the time. I think it's like sometimes it, it comes like ingrained yeah yeah so I think then it's um almost you're at a starting point where you're like okay I probably have some element of weight bias in my in my thinking and my attitudes and like actually what am I going to do to like overcome that and that could be like internal weight bias it could be yeah um external you know like thinking about other people so I think it's just almost that's the starting point because of the society we live in because I think sometimes it becomes quite confronting if someone's like well you're fat phobic or whatever and it's like yeah, you probably are to some degree. Yeah. Um, and with every step of those that you mentioned, understanding, acknowledging that society is almost mm-hmm. going to push back and push weight bias and weight stigma towards you at every point because it's so filtered through in the media messages, in policy, in, in education, mm-hmm. that there's so many ways it comes at you. It's quite difficult to actually change that mental mindset that you might have. Exactly. And it's it's really good to hear so many people trying to change that. So like with you starting at early age primary school children to Ollie's Ollie's work to so many other people doing work on, on weight stigma and at a policy and public health level as well. So Definitely. Um, it's very really, really important. important. Snap. <laughs> <laughs> um so on the note of Ollie's um comic books, the weight of expectation, just want to mention that you can order education packs of these comics. So uh, as long as you are able to put them to good use and you can order these education packs online via Mm -hmm. the Act of Love website and we'll link to that, like I said, in the show notes. As long as you are able to evidence to Ollie um, via his email, which is also on the website, how are you going to put them to good use? Okay, great. Yeah, I think he said you can get 10 of the comic books as well, which is, and we've got a bunch around our offices actually. Yeah, they're great. Um, So yeah, do check that out if you're interested. And uh, we wanted to say a big thank you to Ollie again because it was great like we said to hear from a different perspective to what we're used to Mm -hmm. and just before we go we would like to quickly mention that the deadline for the early bird online registration for our appearance matters nine conference which we haven't which if you haven't heard before is in july this year um so that early bird online registration closes on the 29th of feb that extra day in the leap year is it a leap year this year yeah yeah. No way. No yeah, way they... that's like passed me by. But of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's always oh, random when it comes in. Yeah, something magical is going to happen that day. Oh, I hope. Well, if it does, let me know. Oh, well, yeah, well. <laughs> Check up on you. Manifesting it now. I don't, don't correct me here if I'm wrong, but it might be a Saturday as well. I need to check that, but yeah, so it might be even more opportunity for excitement stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if you want to save that dollar, make sure you're registered before then if you're interested in coming to the conference. Brilliant. And join us back on the podcast in February where we'll have another episode ready and waiting for you. Excellent. Can't wait.